how can neuroscientists be bad for the law if we leap in to embrace findings in neuroscience without thinking about why we have the law in the first place? That could be a bad result. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Welcome to the third season. On this very first episode, we're going to talk about something different. We're going to talk about neuroscience and how it can reshape intellectual property. Let's welcome our guest. Uh, my name is Mark Bartholomew. I'm a professor at the University at Buffalo School of Law. Uh, I've been teaching there about 15 years, and my writing and research interests are in intellectual property law and also uh, things like online privacy and advertising regulation. And so uh, I started out as a lawyer for uh, a large United States law firm. I'm from the United States. Uh, it was one in San Francisco was the office where I was based in. And I just worked there fresh out of law school and got a taste of a bunch of different disputes, uh, uh, you know, for everything from securities fraud to divorces to bankruptcies. But I got a taste of intellectual property among these other things. And I just found I really liked it. Uh, as we were talking a little bit before, one of our clients was the U.S. Olympic Committee. And so just trying to enforce the U.S. Olympic Committee's name and brand, and, and they have uh, intellectual property protections for the five interlocking rings as used in, in this country uh, that lend itself to some interesting disputes. And so that got me hooked on trademark law, but then that was sort of the, the gateway drug to copyright and patent law as well. So when it came time to, I wanted to be a professor, that's what I started writing and researching on. And I've, you know, one nice thing, as you know, about intellectual property law is it keeps changing, updating with the, the times, new interesting things happen. So I've found that, you know, all these years, there's still plenty of things to talk about and try to try to understand. Oh, great. It's, it's very enriching and interesting how uh, IP got you <laughs> in a way. <laughs> um, so let's go with the basics. Uh, what is neuroscience? Sure. And neuroscience doesn't have to be intimidating. So I should say that uh, I was just a history major in college, and I just have a law degree, so I don't pretend to be a scientist. But uh, the kind of the general definition of neuroscience is just the scientific study of the nervous system, particularly the brain. And just as we might use science to study other aspects of the body, this studies the brain and the biological processes involved when we make decisions, engage in other thought processes. And how did you get interested in this topic, very particular topic and, and somewhat far away from your background? And also, how is related to IP? What is the relationship between neuroscience and intellectual property? Yeah, so as, as far as how I got interested in it, uh, I've always been interested in advertising. At one point, I thought I wanted to work in advertising as opposed to working in, in law. I've just always been interested in it. And uh, advertising is really a lot about psychology. How do you design commercial appeals so they grab people's attention, so they like your product? There's a whole you know, skill and art to that. Uh, so, and advertisers think a lot about psychology. Same thing with the law, right? To, to figure out uh, in trademark law whether someone is confused or whether they see a particular mark as a source identifier as opposed to just describing a quality of the product 
that that's really investigating psychological processes in, in people's heads. So I've always tried to kind of keep up on some of the uh, the literature, the social science research on psychology. And what I noticed, you know, going back maybe about a decade ago is there started to be more and more neuroscience research, actually taking records of processes going on in people's brains as opposed to just talking with them about things and analyzing the psychology that way. And then I saw one particular study not that long ago that really got me hooked. And and I'll just break it down uh, fairly quickly here. What the what the scientists did is they uh, had a bunch of people and they put them in a brain scanning machine, an MRI machine, and saw what their brains looked like when they observed several different kind of famous popular logos, things like H&M or or Mercedes or Coca-Cola. And they also had the participants fill out what's known in the in kind of the, the market research literature as a pretty standard process for analyzing how we feel about brands. So just using pencil and paper, you record your feelings about these brands. How, how rugged do you think the brand is? How sophisticated? How exciting? And the researchers reserved just two brands from this. And they said, okay, we're, we're going to not scan people's heads uh, with Disney and Gucci, but we can tell you based on this data set how we think people's brains will look like seeing Disney and Gucci. We'll predict this in advance. We'll tell you what it will look like. And they were right. So, you know, Subsequent to this, they put people in the scanning machines and, and had them look at the Disney logo and the Gucci logo, and their predictions were exactly on point. So this got me thinking, what if we get to the place where we can, instead of relying on people's talk about how they think about these brands or judicial guesses about how they think about brands, what if we can actually have a scientific record of what my brain looks like on Disney or Gucci or Mercedes or any of these brands? That could really give us a kind of evidentiary resource in trademark law that's been lacking. Uh, what exactly did it pick up in the Disney or the, the Gucci? Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, based on these other records, how my brain looks like on H&M and Coca-Cola, it's okay. We can predict just your ratings for sophistication and ruggedness and excitement. And they, they had a bunch of people fill out these paper surveys about, okay, this is how sophisticated or exciting and I think Gucci is. And those things translate into the actual results in the brain when they did the scans later on. So I think this is really interesting because it shows a way to understand, uh, you know, what our kind of emotional reaction is to brands, how we think about brand personality. And that's something that the law has always been a little nervous about, like, how do I really know how Mark feels about a brand? You know, how, you know, how do I really know if they think it's exciting or not? Well, here's a way to provide some objective evidence of that. Yeah, because there's a um, very important element there that we, we will talk about a, a bit further, but it's important to have scientific proof of, uh, of this kind of outputs or this kind of understanding of the public of certain brands. Um, so on that note, was something the current law gets wrong in light of neuroscientific discoveries? Yeah, so we've been talking about trademark law because that was my first entry point to getting interested in this. And happy to talk much more about trademark law in the, in the podcast. But I guess the example I put front and center is the way copyright law decides if something is original enough, creative enough to warrant protection. And 
I'm thinking about this from a uh, United States-based perspective, but I think this is largely true in other jurisdictions in that the analysis of whether something is creative enough to warrant copyright protection is really, really low. Almost anything is creative enough to warrant copyright protection in the United States. Even something you do accidentally, you know, a slip of the hand or you're startled by something or uh, someone clicking the shutter to take a photograph, but with no intention in their mind to do anything creative. And something that is, is even an attempt to copy off of something in the public domain under U.S. law, we say, well, even if you just were motivated to make a carbon copy of something in the public domain, if you if you inadvertently put your own little stamp on it, just the way your handwriting looks different or something, that's enough to make it original enough to be copyrightable. And the reason the law looks this way is the thought that, well, artists are so unique and subjective and who can understand artists so we just better kind of have this really low threshold. And this is really different from patent law, where we have a much more objective threshold and we're willing to test things against what's already out there. We're willing to welcome experts to come in and tell me, well, this is something that is really original in uh, the field at issue. Let's say pharmaceutical research or chemical engineering. But in, in copyright law, we say, oh, no, who, who could understand this stuff? We'd better just make almost anything creative. And so anyway, uh, when I looked at the neuroscientific research and kind of surprisingly, in the last decade, there's been a ton of neuroscientific research about the creative process. It really tells us that this whole double standard, well, scientists use this kind of logical part of their brain and artists use this kind of irrational, non-logical part of, their, part of their brain. That's not true. Creativity in any field, art or science, requires uh, motivation. It's not accidental. It requires an understanding of the prior arts. To do something new and creative, you have to understand kind of the boundaries you're breaking. And so that made me think, you know, it's not that I'm going to wire somebody up while they're paying a painting or write a book to tell them whether they're creative or not. But this research does tell me, maybe we should think about this a little bit differently. Maybe we shouldn't be so willing to grant copyright to accidental, unmotivated works or things that really are hardly different at all from something that already exists in the, in the public domain. So it would be a way of making science out of uh, the creations. Yeah, yeah. And I, I want to emphasize here that You know, sometimes I tell people the, the title or the topic of the book and they think that, well, everybody's going to wear these brain scanners and that will tell us all the answers to intellectual property law. And, you know, I'm not a scientist, but even I know that would be scientifically unsound. I'm not proposing that. What I'm saying is the law has built up over time with these 19th century understandings about how, when we're confused, when we think something uh, is aesthetically beautiful, when we're being creative. And the neuroscientific discoveries of just the last 10, 15 years show us that maybe some of these assumptions about these psychological processes are unfounded. And so uh, we can use that to change how we look at things like, is something original enough? Is something creative enough? Yes, it would be a way of um, raising the bar to make sure that uh, the protection is not just granted to anything because no one wants to make... Uh, a value no one wants to say that this is art or this is not art because it's there's it's uh it's a very subjective uh, statement so it will be a 
objective way of of uh, analyzing this issue. Yeah, exactly. I think for good reason, like you just said, I think courts have been nervous about uh, opining on these things, about what is art, what is not, what is creative enough, uh, because how do we tell this? But now here's a little more information to make those decisions more sound. And I'll just add, you know, why, why bother? Well, there's a cost to saying that everything is creative enough. There's less raw material for new artists to create from. Uh, if the law is designed to incentivize artists to generate new uh, uh, works that lead to more progress or transformations in the field, well, if we have an originality creativity threshold that makes almost anything creative, the law is not doing much to incentivize that kind of behavior. So that's why I thought this was one area where neuroscience could point a path forward. Yeah, I can see the benefits. But now let's talk about the harm that it can cause. So what are the potential problems by using um, brain science to reform IP law? Yeah, so uh, first of all, we just have to be careful about uh, the science being right, right? There are all sorts of examples in the history of the law of courts embracing science and the science turns out to be wrong. And I have a lot of uh, discussion of this in the, in the book. So in the United States, there's this terrible chapter in the 20s and 30s where psychologists were advocating uh, sterilization of what they called mentally defective people. And the courts rubber stamped this. And so tens of thousands of people are, are um, uh, sterilized because of what we now consider bad and inhumane science. Or an analogy that's you know, more on all fours with intellectual property is in the early 20th century, Courts, as they are now, were a little bit nervous about, well, how do I get in the mind of consumers? If I'm deciding trademark cases, how do I get in the mind of consumers? And psychologists, and psychology is really a new profession at the time, said, you know what, courts, you're getting it wrong. Let the experts handle this. And to some degree, they were right. But on the other hand, we know now that some of these surveys from the early 1900s were biased. They tended to favor the trademark owners as opposed to people who are accused of infringement. So we always have to be careful to get the science right. And with neuroscience, there's definitely a tendency to be sometimes overly persuaded. So there's been studies on this. And when jurors or other people see images of parts of the brain, you know, color coded, oh, this red part of your brain lights up when this happens, they can be too persuaded, right? Because just because on a map, I've put the color red for this part of my brain lighting up. Well, it's A, it's not red. B, that might light up for all sorts of reasons, not just because of this one stimulus. So we have to be careful about the science. That's point number one. Point number two is that even if the science is right, you know, the science can't always tell us where we want the law to go. So I'll, I'll pick a trademark law example here, right? In that so far, the courts have been skeptical about trademark actions that are about a defendant's activity that changes the emotional reception to the brand, as opposed to what I would call the informational reception to the brand. In other words, uh, courts have been pretty sympathetic to, well, if what the defendant is doing is confusing, let's say that you sell uh, Cadbury's can, uh, candy, but with uh, you know, uh, two R's instead of one. Right. We'd say, OK, that would confuse people. I'm going to pick up a Cadbury bar thinking that's coming from the, you know, the, the UK company. When it's not. That's the kind of rational informational signal that we're comfortable using the law 
to, to protect or to stop misleading uh, content. On the other hand, what if I say that, uh, uh, well, you're selling Cadbury toilet paper and nobody's confused. Nobody thinks the UK company has gotten into the toilet paper business, but oh, now I don't feel the same about Cadbury chocolate bars anymore. I'm not going to buy them. Well, the courts have been sort of hesitant to recognize these kinds of claims because it was so hard to prove that in the emotional change in people's heads, not that they're confused, but just they have a different emotional reaction to the Cadbury brand. But if with these neuroscientific studies, if all of a sudden we could have that emotional proof, would it be a good idea to recognize all those claims of emotional change? And I would argue that's something where you have to think long and hard about. Uh, it's more concerning for free expression interests if we stop not just confusing speech, but speech that threatens to change the emotional uh, uh, tenor uh, or emotional opinion that people have in, the, in their heads. So I guess what I'm saying here is how can neuroscientists be bad for the law if we leap in to embrace findings in neuroscience without thinking about why we have the law in the first place? That could be a bad result. You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. So taking the science as a tool, not uh, not the one that's going to make the decision, but it's, uh, it helps uh, to achieve uh, the decision according to the case uh, that we have at hand. That would be the, the ideal scenario. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I look at it is most of this information won't decide an individual case by itself, like the brain scan of a particular person uh, as they're you know, hearing a song or seeing a, an advertising campaign. But what we can do is take uh, more information about how we make decisions, how we perceive uh, creative works and advertising, and then use that to change the law of trademark and copyright so it's more accurate. But make sure as we're changing it that we're not uh, you know, betraying the principles about how, why we have the law in the first place, you know, protecting consumers, encouraging creative activity. We have to make sure that those things are front and center, regardless of where the science takes us. Those should be kind of our guiding principles. Well, sounds like a great, <laughs> great uh, plan. Uh, talking about a specific, talking about now trademarks uh, and trademark infringement. Um, how would the test of trademark infringement change based on your science? Yeah. So the way trademark infringement works now is there's a, a constellation of circumstantial factors, uh, you know, roughly seven or eight that courts need to go through in each case and kind of consider them all and decide if this is confusing. So things like, well, how similar are the two marks, the plants and defendants? How close are they? Or things like how related are the two product areas? The thought being that if the defendant and the plaintiff are in very different product areas, people are less likely to be confused. But if they're in the same product area, they're both selling candy bars, and then we'd say, okay, then they're, they're, this is more likely to be confusing. Also, other things like the defendant's intent. Did the defendant mean to confuse people? If so, we say there's a greater chance of likelihood of confusion. And all these things are really guesswork. I think most of the factors make sense to the average person. Like, Yeah, okay. If 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 the two marks are really similar, then people are more likely to be confused. But the tricky thing is thinking about, well, when is something really similar? So one case I like in the United States is about tuna fish. 
And the established brand was chicken of the sea. But then the court had to decide if tuna of the farm tuna was too similar to chicken of the sea. And like, you know, some people might say, oh, I don't know, that doesn't seem similar at all. Or people would say, oh, no, I think that does have a very similar feel to it. So how do we figure this stuff out, right? So I think neuroscience gives us this more tangible objective evidence. If people have the same neural response to things like tuna of the farm and chicken of the sea, if the same signature appears in someone's head, that makes us a little more comfortable saying that the two things do seem more similar under that factor. So I think we could have more comfort, more proof on some of the factors. On the other hand, other things like the defense intent, which is really kind of uh, circumstantial because, you know, just because the defendant wanted to confuse people, wanted to fool people, were they successful? Unclear. And if we're really worried about whether people are actually confused, maybe that factor shouldn't count so much. So my prediction is that the uh, confusion test will, will kind of put more of a premium on things that we can have more evidence on, like similarity of the marks, and will uh, de-emphasize or maybe even cut out the test altogether, things like the defense intent. Is to use it in places where it can actually enrich uh, the discussion, the conversation or the analysis and make sure that it, it goes along what it is already established as the, the test, but it can, it can also help in, in understanding the subjective parts of, of the test that is already uh, in place. Right. You know, there's lots of language in, in the cases with judges kind of agonizing over, oh, this is just a hunch. This is just a, a guess. And, you know, I feel for judges that that, you know, that tuna fish case, you know, I'm not sure how I would decide that if I was a, <laughs> I was a judge. Right. And I don't mean to say that neuroscience is a solution to all this, but at least we could have a little better sense of some of these factors and 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 privilege them in the analysis. Yes, I, I can really see the struggle in between the sea and the farm. And <laughs> right, right. It's, it's, it's not very, it's not a very easy decision. It's, and it's also about um, what have you encountered in life? Because that's how, can, that's how you think and how you relate. Because if you are someone with a farming background or a fishing background, it's also different for you. So it's, there's a lot of things there that it can, it can change in this particular case. <laughs> Right, right. That's true. And another thing that's also very relevant in the copyright context is, like you just said, familiarity can affect our reactions to things. Uh, also, in trademark law, the test is not whether any consumer would be confused, it's whether a consumer for the relevant product would be confused. So, uh, you know, if we can have data on how the average person, you know, buying a stereo equipment or the average person who is really into golf or whatever the brand is, or, you know, the, the, the category of product is at issue, we can have a better sense of people are in reality likely to be confused. Who is the average consumer? That's another question as well, that it, it's it, different uh, jurisdictions have different ideas. So in the UK, there's a very specific definition in the US as well. So that who is the average consumer? And, and But it's true, like, how do you define exactly what the person was thinking in the moment they made the purchase or they were offered the, the services or, or, the, or the product? So it's, uh, it's very, very interesting to, to see it in that light. And with that, let's move to copyright. So how would uh, copyright infringement would, uh, be changed or should be changed uh, according to neuroscience? Yeah, so the, the current test for, for copyright infringement Uh, is really 
hard to get a handle on. It's kind of a uh, described as a black hole in, in uh, U.S. law. It relies on the reactions of the ordinary observer. That's the term of art in the law, the ordinary observer. So would the ordinary observer consider the defendant's work to be substantially similar to the plaintiff's, the original artist or, or author? If the ordinary observer would consider it substantially similar, then we have copyright infringement. Okay? Now, uh, that's about all there is. There is not a lot else for courts or even a jury to go on. It's a one size fits all test. So unlike our discussion just now, a trademark law, it really doesn't depend on audience. We treat all all um, uh, observers alike, whether they've listened to a thousand hip hop songs or they only like Baroque classical music, you know, they still are are you know, treated the same. Uh, there's no differences on the, the work at issue, really. So we kind of treat the test the same from the perspective of music or literature or visual art. And the thought is we really want to surface the impression of the ordinary observer. Right. And so that means that no experts we don't want someone who really knows music or knows art because we don't want these experts, you know, these uh, these biased elites to tell us what the ordinary person thinks or feels. So there's really very little guidance for a juror you know, or even a court to go on when they're making this assessment about substantial similarity. So how could neuroscience change this? And you can tell how I I feel like the, the current law is crying out for a little more guidance here. Uh, so I think what neuroscience tells us is that when, and there's a branch of neuroscience towards neuroaesthetics, which just examines the way people make judgments about art, you know, in their heads. And what that study has shown is that, well, our reactions really do change based on our familiarity and experience with works. So maybe this one size fits all approach doesn't make so much sense. Maybe we should be aware of, well, who is this art for? You know, who who is the relevant audience for this art? And uh, examine the impressions of, of observers with that in mind. And then another thing neuroscience has shown us is that uh, the kind of art we're talking about really changes the way we process the work. So whereas visual art tends to be more holistic, we kind of get a a general impression of the whole uh, work of art. Music is different. You know, even the ordinary person who doesn't have much experience with a particular genre of music will tend to dissect things more, to latch on to particular segments of the music. And so that can mean, for example, in a case that, well, if, if there's a particular part of the music, but it's a catchy part of, you know, both songs that's similar, that should be something that should be weigh heavily in favor of substantial similarity. But copyright law doesn't really look at it this way currently, and they don't really solicit any guidance about how we're likely to process these works depending on the kind of art and audience at issue. So I would like to change the test so we could have more guidance about audiences and kind of art to better understand what we should be looking for in the substantial similarity analysis. Yes, especially in music, there's some parts of, there are many cases where just, there was just this part that it was very recognizable and it was uh, too similar to another one. And that's what got, uh, that won the case or that's what uh, turned over the, the decision towards them. Because there's so, there, there are parts of the song that people can really 
the moment they 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 hear that those those sounds they immediately go to that song they know exactly which song is it they know exactly uh which artist is so it's um it's something quite particular uh in, in music yeah exactly and i i think you know that was well said we have an intuition to think oh you know i really like that little part of that song that resonates with me and and i, I sometimes courts do that as well they like Oh, this part of the Justin Bieber song is the kind of the important part. There's actually a, a Justin Bieber case that's pretty important in U.S. law from just a couple couple of years ago. But the problem I have is that it's really guesswork. And because we're so nervous about intruding on the aesthetic judgment of the ordinary observer, uh, the test in the United States now is not to give the jury any guidance about this. We just kind of present the works and let it wash over them. And they're supposed to kind of pluck out of the air, whether they're substantially similar or not. So better, I think, if we could say, oh, it's a music case. Uh, it's okay for you to kind of dissect the works more, focus on these particular areas. I think that would be helpful and lend itself to a more sophisticated analysis. Every art is different. Expression, how you express yourself in music is very different, how you do it in visual arts. And, and also in film as well, there's part of films that people can quote scene by uh, in, in a scene, they can quote word by word, and then they, they wouldn't care about the rest of the movie, for example, but they know this particular scene that is uh, forever in our minds. Like for example, in the matrix, uh, the scene where Neo is, is dodging the bullets, it's for, it's in, 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 in everyone that was uh, around that area, especially my generation, uh, the millennials, we were, it, it was like a, a landmark in the film industry, this uh, scene. Uh, so it, it's interesting, it would be interesting to see that the courts would see art, how people uh, also consume art and also engage in the art as well. So yes. with that, can science truly value or measure art or artistic creation? Yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a big kind of counter-argument, right? Uh, we're so used to thinking that science and art come from separate places, two different worlds, that left brain, right brain uh, uh, kind of uh, idea that I, I mentioned before, uh, that artists are different from scientists. And, you know, I want to say at the outset here that I, I don't think that we simply are going to scan people and come up with a value. You know, this is creative. You know, this is this is uh, infringing, or this has the same aesthetic judgment uh, in this film that we're arguing is copying from the Matrix. I don't want to imply that, but what I I do want to suggest is that it's not quite right to think that we can never rigorously evaluate artistic expression. Uh, Turns out that the way, you know, we discussed this before, the way artistic works are created rely on the same creative processes as the way scientific works are created. So to the extent we thought, well, we could never compare uh, a new creation with what came before because you just can't compare one artwork against another to decide if it's creative enough. You know, art is subjective. It's anybody's thing. It's all in the eye of the beholder. That's not quite... That's not quite true. And I will suggest that what, this is something that surprised me. You know, I always heard that, that phrase, uh, you know, art is in the eye of the beholder, right? So in other words, we all have our own impressions. Who can say what art is? But at least in a variety of metrics, it turns out that 
uh, we can we can realistically say that well there are certain things that are creative. For example, if you had uh, tests where you uh, have a panel of experts rate, let's say there's one one study I love about comedians telling jokes, and they had kind of expert comedians, new comedians, and then just people who are not comedians at all, weren't really funny. Um, and they had experts rank the jokes. Uh, and turns out that there is agreement. There is agreement on this. And while people are telling the jokes, if you look at what's going on in their heads, different things are going on in the heads of the trained professionals, the people who score highest on the creativity meter for the jokes, than the other people. Um, turns out that we largely agree on what's funny. Um, another, per, another study did this just on audible laughter and then measured the reactions there. And in general, the more audible laughter, the more people agree on what's funny. So there is a way to measure these things and at least give us more of a sense uh, about how people make aesthetic judgments or creative judgments. It's not it's not something where we're resigned to forever say, oh, what's art or uh, what's aesthetically appealing in a copyright work? I don't know. So we'll guess we'll leave to the jury to their own devices or leave to the court to its own devices and just say that, well, everything's creative. There's ways to learn more about the process here that we can use to think a little more deeply about how we decide whether something is an artistic creation. Not to imply that in a single case, we're going to wire people up and decide if it's art or not. That's not what I'm implying. What I am saying is that we can unpack things more about motivation and whether something is accidental or not, or whether or not it truly differs from what came before. And those things aren't just about science. Those are about the way that any creative item is, is made. At least that's what I'm arguing the latest scientific studies suggest. Yes. And going back to the laugh, um, I don't know if you were referring to, I read uh, some weeks ago about Um, an episode being recorded for a series and there were uh, one, it was, re it was recorded and they put the, the laugh, do you know, the, the typical uh, recorded laugh on the episode and they, they put in, they, they show it to a focus group and everyone loved it, but everyone criticized the record, the, the, the laughs. So they took them out. Then they did again uh, without uh, the laughs and, people find it less funny, the show. Uh, and they were less uh, uh, less prone to laugh by themselves because they, they didn't have the input of the recorded laugh. So I don't know if you were referring to to that uh, or something similar to that. Uh, no, I hadn't heard about that. But that's a great, great example. And that, you know, that, that really shows why I think uh, neuroscientific evidence is so attractive. You know, one reason why it's attractive to business is that uh, You know, just to put it bluntly, you can't trust people. They say we like it better with a laugh track out, but they're wrong. We like it with a laugh track better. And nobody likes to think of themselves as being influenced too much by fake artificial laughter when they watch something, right? Like, oh, that's not going to tell me whether it's funny or not. Yeah. But we are. Uh, nobody likes to think that they're influenced by certain kinds of advertising. Oh, I make up my own judgment about whether I really like this product or not. But we are. Uh, so the appeal of neuroscience is that instead of the typical 
focus group research where we ask people what they think. Would you like it in blue or would you like it in red? Well, we're, we're getting these things without asking the person. We're getting these kind of almost involuntary direct signals about whether they really prefer something or not, or whether they really react in this way or not. And, you know, if I'm a business, I like that evidence better because that seems to offer a more accurate prediction of how people will behave. Yeah, information is power. And then the more you understand uh, the public or, or your customers or your clients, the better you'll be uh, at your service or your product, the, the better you will tailor it to serve their needs or their wants. So, yeah, I can really see the, the great value on, on using science, but we caution not to not to also to brainwash <laughs> that yes. there's, there's also the possibility that it, this uh, kind of input can be abused because then you will know perhaps too much or uh, will know exactly how to trigger people into doing the things that you would like them to do. Yeah, absolutely. Are, are you familiar with Cheetos, the, the cheese puff snack food? Yes, of course. <laughs> okay. All right. So I love this example. So uh, the folks who made Cheetos, they, they did brain scans with people. So first, first they asked people, not, not while the brain scans were going on, well, what do you like? What do you not like about Cheetos? And the people said, oh, we love the taste. They're, they're delicious. Well, we don't like exactly the, the cheese dust on our fingers. And they said, oh, that's very interesting. And then they did the same thing uh, in a related way where they scan people's brains, but they show them different images from advertising and proposed advertising of people eating Cheetos. And what got the best results, not the worst result, the best result was the cheese dust on the fingers. And they said, oh, oh why is that? And we can offer theories. Maybe people like to be reminded of being a kid again and being messy when they eat their food. But the Cheetos people's doubled down and actually featured that in their commercials. And supposedly it generated millions of dollars and more sales afterwards, all based on neuroscience. Um, so you know, that's one kind of benign example. But you're right. We could think of ways in which this could be leveraged and kind of bad ways. We could think of it being used for sexist advertising, racist advertising, or other things that are unsavory. So then we have to think, you know, uh, how do we feel about that? Do we want businesses using it? Do we want even the law to step in here? So neuromarketing used by businesses is another topic where, like you said, information is power. And then the question is, will it ever get to be so effective that we would need to think more about how this should be used in the marketplace? To make sure you have a moral compass or at least an ethical um, rule book or, or guidance uh, when you're doing this this sort of um, uh, neuroscience that, um, um, inputs or neuroscience applications. So to, it's it's the same with um, with science in general and all the upcoming uh, new things that we have, new developments we have in AI, we have in all these uh, as well data management and, and data mining, all these things. Uh, Uh, we need to make sure that it's not only about the science behind it, but there's also uh, some conscience and, and, and some ethical um, rules that um, this developments must follow. Because if not, uh, it can be used against all of us because we, we're all in the risk of, we're all consumers, we, are, we all are uh, part of the public. So we need to make sure that everything that is uh, developed is developed in the right way, or at least it, it has the the right uh, purpose. Yeah, that's that's very well put, right? Uh, you know, the law is pretty conservative, so it doesn't change quickly, but that's not to say that the law can't sometimes change in an 
an unthinking way or one that doesn't analyze the real world effects of this kind of technology on people. So not just neuroscience, but as you said, AI or facial recognition technologies or things like that, things I'm very concerned about. So I think it's good to to think deeply about these things before we embrace them and embrace them in the, in the right way. I completely agree. But thank you so much for this wonderful interview. It has been quite a pleasure uh, talking and, and learning from you. And I, I look forward to, to the release of your book. Do you have a date for the release? Uh, it's scheduled for this July. So this July. Okay. So perfect. So um, you can find the book on Amazon. And again, the title is Intellectual Property and the Brain, How Neuroscience Will Reshape Legal Protection for Creations of the Mind. So thank you so much for your time and uh, best of luck with the book and, and the rest of your research. Thank you very much. I really, really enjoyed it. We have reached the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only.